0: I'm Tom Keene with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Uh, Ellen uh, Etner with us now. She's the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. And Ellen, I was reminded of, of what happened about a month ago. There was a flurry of emails among team surveillance. Ellen Zentner changes her call, now says there's going to be a March Fed move. Must be March 2nd or something. <laughs> something like that. Help us process what we got from the Fed today. The, the, uh, this week, rather, the minutes from, from that, uh, that FOMC. I mean, what does it tell you about the path forward?
2: Well, I think there was a lot of focus from investors on what would the Fed uh, say about its balance sheet? What did the Fed say about its balance sheet at that March FOMC meeting? Um, and I think what we're starting to see is a, a, a some miscommunication or communication problems that will probably plague the Fed this year around how should investors think about when the time comes, which we've been told at the end of this year, the time would likely come to draw down the balance sheet. That may Massive $4.5 trillion or $4.2 trillion balance sheet that the Fed has. They need to reduce that. But how should investors think about that vis a vis the number of rate hikes? Will the balance sheet uh, uh, drawdown uh, be in lieu of rate hikes or will it be in tandem with rate hikes? Uh, and the Fed has not made that decision yet, but markets traded as though the Fed had made the decision that they would just simply stop raising rates when they start drawing down the balance sheet later this year. And that is certainly. Not the message the Fed wanted to send.
1: Does this get back to the, the comments that Bill Dudley made in his interview with uh, with Michael McKee about um, about the sort of effect of uh, uh, of drawing down the balance sheet? What that would mean, kind of uh, in light of what how that's sort of similar to raising rates.
2: Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, you've got <clears throat> Dudley on one side which, which uh, who has implied that uh, balance sheet drawdown would be in lieu of rate hikes, yeah. uh, in fact, talking about maybe taking a little pause in the rate hike cycle when they start drawing down the balance sheet. On the other side of it, you have Chair Yellen, who has said they're complementary uh, uh, and would be used in tandem. Uh, and so what I think markets missed uh, about the March meeting is mm-hmm. that the three rate hikes that the Fed envisions for. Next year included balance sheet assumptions in there that they don't have to go more quickly than that because you are also drawing down the balance sheet.
0: What do these Fed hikes mean for jobs? What do they mean for the vector, the first, second derivatives of job formation? I mean, do they, three rate hikes, does that even begin to impinge on? plans of job formation? I well, don't think so. Well,
2: the purpose of, of hiking rates is you hike rates to tighten financial conditions. We certainly haven't, haven't seen any tightening of financial conditions, and the Fed seems to be o- okay with that. You tighten financial conditions because you raise the cost of credit, you raise the cost of funding payrolls, and the economy slows. We have not seen any effect of that, exactly. and I don't think that they, we will until we get a much higher federal funds rate yeah. what we have seen is consumers borrowing in advance of higher interest rates that's been the number one answer on these consumer surveys of why do you think now is a good time to buy a home a car other big durables and so that's created a lot of anticipatory activity yeah. because we think the fed's going to raise rates and rates are going to be higher so you want to buy right. today
0: 30 seconds all we got we're going to come back with Ellen Zetner. what what about auto sales I mean, what what was the Morgan Stanley sift on auto sales?
2: So auto sales surged in December to Mm. an incredible high. And what we saw was that was really uh, households responding to the prospects of of tax cuts, also the higher interest rates coming, so I want to buy now. Having surged at the end of last year, though, we've seen some softness coming into this year, and that is a big headwind for consumer spending in the first quarter. But the rise uh, uh, that we, we talked about uh, just earlier on Bloomberg TV in in uh, auto delinquencies in the subprime space. It is such a small segment of the market. It's not uncommon late in a business cycle to start to get a rise in delinquencies in that no. space. And it, I'm not worried that we're going to see some choking off of okay. the level of auto sales. We're creating jobs. People have to commute. People buy cars. Okay,
0: Ellen Zentner with us, and we'll continue on Jobs Help me here with the number one mail item I get on the jobs report. Fancy people like you say wages are increasing. There's not a single listener who agrees. They take out this inflation item, that inflation item, and they would suggest as a general statement, wages are flat. If we get the higher inflation, Chair Yellen's speaking of, do we get even more depressed real wages?
2: Well, they we should be getting a continued strengthening the labor market alongside that. I mean, uh, the Fed is focused on core inflation in the U.S., so stripping out uh, energy and food, which, of course, are very important things that the consumer uh, purchases. Um, but core inflation will be moving through the Fed's 2% goal later this year. And that is going to keep the Fed on a gradual track. I don't think it speeds up the rate of, the to of hikes. What's uh, it do to wages? Well, alongside that is a very, very easy set of financial conditions in the economy and jobs that are growing and continue to grow more strongly. And what I'm encouraged about is that the job uh, growth that we've seen, especially since the election, is coming from small business. We're seeing business formations pick up and business, small businesses have increased hiring. So wagers are going to continue to grow and strengthen. What we need with that small business entrepreneurial spirit coming back is that, wages will start spilling over into middle-income and high-paying industries, which is where wage growth more broadly picks up more rapidly. What we've seen is a very weak, slow bleed upward in wage growth. It has been accelerating, but at a very slow acceleration. That will strengthen as we create more jobs with wage gains that Mm -hmm. spill over into middle and high-paying industries. That is the key.
1: You've highlighted the fact that small businesses and medium-sized businesses are hiring. The big ones are not. What's up with that? Why is that the case?
2: well i think if you if you look at what's happened since the election, uh, there's been no more clarity uh, of uh, uh, the business environment operating environment for multinationals. you know have we lowered the hurdle rate for investment uh, and no, we have no clear picture on corporate tax reform yet, and while uh, CapEx plan, so capital expenditures plans, have risen. Those large businesses are telling us that they don't know if those plans will come through because we need some clarity around corporate tax reform. If you're a small and medium-sized business in the U.S., you care not about that. Uh, you've got consumers out there uh, spending more consumer confidence is high. You might get some easing on the regulatory front. Uh, and so we've seen small and medium businesses respond to that where, you know, any kind of lower corporate tax rate later this year is good for them, uh, and so it's really been a boon for domestic activity, uh, and that's what we're seeing small businesses respond to, and that's where the job growth is coming from.
1: There was a spicy moment in the last FOMC press conference at uh, Janet Yellen talking about GDP, referring to it as a uh, a, a a pretty noisy. Indicator. Did How you do you, Ellen? Janet Yellen,
2: spicy? <laughs>
1: it's all relative. there, right, right Ellen. spicy in <laughs> the, the context of the FOMC, uh, the FOMC press well, conference. It's
2: spicy for economists, let's say, because we have a low bar there for what go. we think is spicy. Uh, but yeah, she's absolutely right. And what they're doing is heading off any concern over uh, what Tom and I talked about earlier with the optics of first quarter GDP, when we get that print later this month, it's going to look pretty darn weak. And that might raise some eyebrows. Uh, But the second quarter is already set for a pretty nice rebound. 3% plus? 3% plus in Q2. So that if, again, if you're a good economist and you average across the first Mm -hmm. half of the year, it tells us that we're pretty much still tracking right in the pocket of the Fed's outlook around 2%. Uh,
0: Let me give you a curveball question uh, before we throw you out the door. Thank you. (laughs) All the rates you know, Sanctuary Cities. Sanctuary I saw days. a sign on Twitter, Malibu in outside LA is making a joke about being a sanctuary city. Are people still migrating to the cities? Is there, as Bernard Balin, the great historian, would say a depopulating of North America? Are people migrating to the cities?
2: Well, I think it's, it's largely driven by demographics. Um, and the millennials have been a big driver uh, of that, the urbanization and people moving toward the cities and not having to own vehicles uh, and to stay more mobile, if you will. And I can only see that continuing because you look at Gen Z, which are not quite an adult population yet, but they're whoa, larger. Whoa, whoa,
0: whoa. It gen, generation a little Jargon alert by Amazon. I, I don't know what we get after. <laughs> what is this? Generation <laughs> Zentner? After
2: Z. Yes, gen, no, Generation Zentner is too old for that, let me tell you, Tom. Uh, no, but Gen, gen Z is the, the name we've given the generation coming after the millennials, and the leading edge of them are just now around the age of 18. So they aren't quite an adult population yet, but they're even larger than the millennials. And to the extent that they may continue that trend of urbanization, of wanting to be mobile and being right. connected uh, to their smartphones, so to speak, uh, uh, you know, we might see a continuation how, of this demographic. Trend. How young
0: is Gen Z? How, how low do they go in age?
2: Uh, well, they they, they're, go, 18 to they what? they're they're birth to 18. So the birth leading edge to, of no, the no, 18.
0: Let g- me g- 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 let me brief you on <laughs> this, this. Jay-Z's less successful brother. Uh, weekend. There's Gen Z <laughs> and after that's Generation Slime. Okay. Yeah, if, yeah, you're yeah. Talent, if, if, if you're under 18, your
3: generation,
2: right? Your your generation is are, are not an economic agent for the economy. They just yet, do slime. But, but that's what we care about when they move beyond 18 and become economic. No, they become adults. more expensive. Is the okay. Phrase. Tom Tom they, is a little dismal this morning uh, on tuition so expenses. Oh. Yeah, the
0: Gen more
1: expensive. Gen, uh, what is does the Gen Z took me to uh, Victoria's <laughs> Secret?
0: Oh, did
2: they?
1: Yeah. I dropped 175 bucks. And last
0: you weekend. sat in the lobby reading.
1: I was outside on a bench, and I, she comes out with a credit card. <laughs>
0: you better been on a bench outside, <laughs> no, Believe me, they're spending. Oh, very good, John Tucker weighing in on Gen what Z. What a, that that was a curveball!
1: That was a curveball, Tom. Ellen, Z- was curveball. it was <laughs>
0: Ellen Zetner is our Gen Z, and we are thrilled that she gives us perspective from Morgan Stanley. This is an important conversation now. Our John Farrell with the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari.
4: and that relaxing them could spur economic growth. Minneapolis Federal Reserve President Neil Kashkari responded, saying those assertions are demonstrably false. Joining us now is Neil Kashkari, Minneapolis Federal Reserve President. Neil, great to have you with us on the programme. I'll just begin with a simple question. What is the objective of taking on a Wall Street chief executive so publicly like you have in the last 24 hours?
5: Well, our job is to call out risks where we see them and to propose solutions. And when a Wall Street leader, and I know Jamie Dimon and I like him and I respect him, when he says things that I believe are incorrect, I think it's my responsibility and our responsibility to speak out. The fact is too big to fail has not been solved. The biggest banks are still too big to fail. The American people and Congress need to know that. And we have offered them potential solutions in the form of substantially higher capital requirements.
4: Neil, there is a narrative building up around you. and I'd be interested to get your response to- to it that Neil Kashkari is looking for some publicity to elevate himself to get a more senior role on the FOMC. What do you say back to the people that are saying that, Neil?
5: Well, you know, when somebody can't argue with me on the substance or the facts or the analysis, they're uh, left with trying to criticize the messenger. And so, to me, i interpret that as a white flag of surrender. I'll take that criticism all day long. That means they they can't argue with the analysis. The analysis stands on its face.
6: So, So, Neil, this is not the first time you've raised the question of too big to fail and your concerns about this. This goes back now a couple of years or so, so it's not a secret. How many people who are Federal Reserve governors or presidents agree with you? Uh, do other
5: people at the Fed uh, share your view? You know, several do. Several have reached out to me and said thank you for continuing to beat this drum, to continue to raise this issue. And you know, my hope is that if we keep talking about it, we keep pointing out the facts, showing where other folks are wrong who are saying that we've solved this, that we will motivate people. I'm. I like the fact that there's some. Uh, news stories coming out of the administration saying that they're looking at financial reforms to try to address too big to fail Uh, i think we need to all keep pushing in the same direction put out options and let the American people decide. Do they want to live with the financial system where the biggest banks are supported by taxpayers implicitly or explicitly, or do we want a more rational system where the taxpayers are not on the hook? I want the latter. I think most people do. It's our job to give them the the facts and the information so they can make that decision. So, Neil, if
6: it is the responsibility of Federal Reserve leadership to call out risks where where they exist, as you said, and if other members of the leadership feel the way you do, why are we not hearing from
5: them? Well, each person should make their own call on what they're comfortable you know taking on. We have a lot of issues to deal with. Obviously monetary policy is our core mandate and I'm outspoken on monetary policy too at the right times. So I'll leave it to my colleagues to decide where they want it, which battles they want to pick. Uh, but this is one that the other thing is, remember, I'm one of the only people, Bill Dudley and I are the only two people sitting on the FOMC today who were literally in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008. And so this has burned into me how hard it was to arrest the dominoes from falling from one big bank to the next big bank to the next big bank. And so, yeah, maybe that's why I take this. Uh, put this at the forefront of the issues that I'm focused on because I was one of the first responders actually trying to arrest the crisis.
2: And of course, front and center now is uh, Glass-Steagall. Is there any good in the idea of separating the commercial and investment banking unit? What does that do?
5: You know, I'm not sure that it does a lot, to be honest with you, I'm not opposed to it, but by itself it doesn't address too big to fail. Remember in 2008, we had pure play investment banks like Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns run into trouble and pose systemic risk for the economy. And we had some pure play commercial banks do the same thing. So it wasn't simply the combination of these two activities that created the risk. So to me, the most important thing we can do, whether it's an investment bank, a commercial bank, or a combination, is substantially increase the capital requirements of the biggest institutions That's the buffer that protects them and protects the taxpayers if they make a mistake. If beyond that, we also want to separate the activities, I'm not opposed to it. But the separation of the two by itself is not going to address too big to fail. All
2: right, Neil, got to get to Fed policy now. Can you hike and normalize at the same time?
5: You mean in terms of the balance sheet? Yep. Well, my preference is that we put out a detailed plan on exactly how and when we're going to normalize the balance sheet. But do people agree with you? Because to that.
2: Because it's been a lot of conflicting views. Dudley seems to think we have to take a pause in rates. You uh, obviously advocated a balance sheet before we do any more rate hikes. What's the more of the consensus in the Fed? It really wasn't clear in the minutes.
5: Well, I think there's a wide range of views, and I think the minutes reflected the fact that people are still thinking through a wide range of options. And who knows? As we have further deliberations. Perhaps my colleagues will convince me that uh, what I've articulated so far may not be optimal. We'll see. We want to look at the data and the analysis. But to me, I'm focusing you know, the jobs report today is very important. I want to see if the unemployment rate stays around 4.7 or if it starts to drop. I'm trying to get signals of whether or not this labor force participation story of Americans reentering the labor force. Is that going to continue? I hope it does. At some point, it's going to run out. And so I'm looking for signs on when that process is going to run out. That's going to be an important indicator for when I think it's going to be time to normalise policy, whether it's by increasing the federal funds rate or it's by shrinking the balance sheet.
4: Well, Neil, just quickly on the payrolls report, 180 is the median estimate here at Bloomberg. If we carry on printing 180, 200, 220, what does that tell you about labour market slack?
5: Uh, It tells me it doesn't tell me a lot by itself because you need to combine that. So let's say it's 200 and that's well in excess of the 80, 100, 120 we need to keep up with population growth. Then you have to look at the headline unemployment rate. If that headline unemployment rate stays at four seven while we're creating jobs at that rapid pace, that suggests that people are. Entering the labor market or yeah. not leaving, and that that's very helpful. And so that's what we've been seeing over the last couple of years. I hope to see that continue. But if you if you hit 200 and then the headline unemployment rate is dropping, that's an indicator that maybe we're starting to use up that slack and that it could be closer to being time to normalize uh, interest rates.
0: Very good, Neil Kashkari, in conversation with Mr. Farrell, Ms. Steele, and Mr. Weston uh, this morning. Some really interesting nuances, David Gura, to that conversation uh, the idea that that mr kashkari stands alone will be interesting to see
1: yeah i thought his response to david weston's question about whether or not others on the fomc agree with him was yeah. interesting he didn't name any names but he said that other members yeah. of the committee had reached out to him and again this is a, a mm-hmm. something of, of profound importance to him he's issued a big report on uh, on the stability of the financial system so interesting yeah. to hear from him this uh, morning yeah.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated Member, SIPC. This is arguably David Gurra, the most important interview of the day. Ambassador Ross is steeped in the linkage between the Eastern Mediterranean and and the Soviet Union with public service, back to George Bush Sr., George Herbert Walker uh, Bush. Why don't you bring in Ambassador
1: Dennis Ross? He's now the William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East uh, Policy. Ambassador Ross, let me begin uh, with a piece that's in the New York Times this morning by your former colleague, uh, Tony Blinken, former Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, He uh, praises the president for making the strikes that he made yesterday and then says, quote, the real test for Mr. Trump is what comes next. What does come next, as you see him?
7: Well, I think there's several things that need to come next. On the one hand, there needs to be some quiet messages to the Russians, uh, to the Iranians, and also uh, to the Assad regime, perhaps delivered through the Russians, uh, that this was a step taken because there has to be a price when chemical weapons are used. Otherwise, they become a, a normal weapon, and that's not acceptable. But that the U.S. is not interested in seeing an escalation, and that we shouldn't be tested. Uh, The Russians should look at this as a moment where now it's time to try to actually think about a diplomatic way out of Syria. It's time for the Russians to go back and embrace the very principles they adopted in the Security Council resolution with us, 2231, uh, which was done during the Obama administration a little over a year ago, maybe slightly over a year ago, uh, in which they committed to a ceasefire, a cessation of hostilities. They committed to ending the sieges of towns, the humanitarian sieges of towns, the unencumbered access of provision of humanitarian assistance, and an 18-month political transition period. If you want to find a way out of Syria, or at least you want to find a way to manage what has been a humanitarian catastrophe... You need to find a way to to end the war, and the only way that can be done is if you go back to those principles, and this message to the Russians should be, this isn't the time to escalate, this is a time for you to embrace principles, but those principles are ones you actually never implemented. With the Iranians, uh, if you think that uh, testing us now is going to be good for you, think again. We've just demonstrated that when we say something, you should heed our words. Uh, Here again, we're not looking to
1: make it worse. Don't you take a step in that direction? Let me draw upon your your, your deep okay. diplomatic experience here. I'm looking at a quotation here from the Iranian foreign minister, who uh, said that what we saw last night was the U.S. resorting to military force over bogus chemical weapons allegations, drawing a line back to 2003 and what got us into engagement uh, in the war in Iraq. This is an area, this is an era rather, uh, where fake news has become a term of the day. How do you interact with a country like Iran and to an extent like Russia? Uh, who isn't uh, 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 meeting us at face when it comes to to what we saw in Syria earlier this week?
7: Right. Well, again, I mean, look, they may adopt a public posture that's designed to uh, to demonstrate they weren't in the wrong. Um, what you're seeing is the Russians sort of publicly doubling down, and I think they're doing it because Putin never wants the U.S. to use force and look decisive in doing so. But he's also not interested in escalating things either because he's already achieved what he wants in Syria. As for the Iranians. What they care about is basically preserving right now the Assad regime. Uh, and here's the great irony: only a few days ago, you had the Secretary of State saying that it was up to the future of Assad was up to the Syrian people. Well, right. Assad's own actions have put that at risk now. So, in terms of your question, I think the the answer is: whatever they say publicly, you communicate something privately. If they want to move in a different direction, then they're doing it at their risk. Uh, the fact is. Neither the Russians nor the Iranians are great risk-takers. They're very good at drawing Uh, on others. And so one of the things to do now is not to confront them publicly. If you confront countries publicly, you put them in a position where it's hard to back down. If you communicate privately, then you find a way, perhaps, to to move Mm -hmm. back from
0: where we are. Ambassador Ross, you have more experience, I think, than anyone breathing on how presidents adapt, adjust, and become overcome by events. You could hear it in the president's voice last night. With these events, are we finally going to get an ascension of our cabinet officers and finally get the offices filled at the Pentagon, at the State Department, and frankly, at the other departments as well? I mean, I, I think here of the need for perspective and conversation to assist our president. Was last night a shift towards normalization of domestic policy?
7: Well, it, it may be too soon to say because it still is going to take the administration some time to, to fill all the slots that are available. But I think one thing that emerges, you seem to have had a pretty systematic deliberative process over a short period of time that involved the key the key national security players, mm-hmm. meaning the secretary the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, and the national security advisor. They seem to have very quickly organized the process, made certain that the necessary intelligence was available, communicated to key allies uh, in advance, uh, and, and presented right. the president what were a series of options. Well, that's the way the process is supposed to work.
0: Yeah, the geometry here is important, 100 miles from Damascus uh, to the west, the uh, Navy yards the Soviet Jews, the Russians rather, uh, use in the eastern Mediterranean. There's a small nation up above, Turkey. It has a real vested interest in these affairs. How should President Trump uh, and his government uh, dress uh, in calm Turkey this morning?
7: Well, interestingly, the Turks came out very quickly and were supportive of this. We're going to find, by the way, that many, all of our traditional friends and partners in the region are heartened by this. You know, fairly or not, they perceive the Obama administration as basically withdrawing from the region or withdrawing from our responsibilities in the region. Well, I think that was an exaggerated perception. Nonetheless, they had it. Uh, and now what they've seen is not just rhetoric from the Trump administration, but now they've seen an action uh, that is reassuring it for no other reason than making it clear there's a price if you use chemical weapons. Uh, and the idea that Assad could flaunt the international community and pay no price, it he clearly thought he wasn't going to pay a price or he wouldn't have done this.
1: Ambassador Ross, our, our colleague Nick Wadhams uh, covers foreign policy for us. He's at Mar-a-Lago. He was at the briefing last night that H.R. McMaster gave with Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, and the takeaway from that was uh, both of those men say this is a, a one-off. We shouldn't draw any uh, conclusions here. that This is going to lead to more strikes. Uh, how difficult is it going to be to keep that, that policy? In other words, you, you make a strike like this one, is it, is it more difficult uh, the next time around? Well,
7: I think the, the real problem is, the response of the Syrians and the Iranians and even the Russians. You know, if, if, in fact, they want to draw us in to do more, it's pretty easy for them to do so. If Assad, for example, were to carry out another chemical weapon strike, we would be duty-bound to take an additional step, and it would have to be in some ways more decisive. Now, I think that's not so likely, but I do think it's possible that they could up the ante on the ground. Uh, in Syria as a way of showing that they weren't cowed, uh, they weren't intimidated. What's still, it? the problem that Assad has is Assad has very limited ground forces. And if he decides to do more, like dropping barrel bombs and the like, uh, the fact is he still depends upon the Iranians and the Shia militias to extend his control over territory. While well, the Iranians and the Russians have invested in preserving Assad in power, they haven't invested in having him take back every inch in Syria. So, you know, they, they have some dilemmas they face, too. The question we're going to see within the next couple of days is, are they willing to try to demonstrate that this wasn't decisive? Are they willing to test to see whether or not uh, the administration is prepared to
1: do more? I have about 30 seconds left with you, Mr. Ambassador. We had uh, Nikki Haley, the ambassador to the U.N., telling Greta Van Susteren on MSNBC that we don't do soft power. Uh, how worried are you about rhetoric like that?
7: Well, you know, I think everybody does soft power. <laughs> it's, you know, the value of soft power is that it makes you, it, it makes others want to be like you. It draws others to you. So I wouldn't be so quick to dispense with soft power. Hard power, by the way, is a necessary part of effective diplomacy. There is a coercive element to effective diplomacy, We've just applied that now we should follow up in a way and take advantage of some of the changes this may have brought.
0: Dennis Ross, thank you so much. Ambassador Ross uh, with the Washington Institute, of course, with his public service uh, this morning. And now joining us from Janet's Capital, Bill Gross, this Jobs Day in a real move here again to recap, folks. And really quite important, 170,000 was the statistic. We went less, 89,000 with a bad revision, which really gets you down somewhere in the vicinity of a 50,000-plus statistic, a big uh, disappointment. Uh, Bill Gross, good morning. You're in Newport Beach, California, where the weather's never uh, an issue. Are you going to say that this is just about weather in the northeast where I had a miserable winter? (laughs)
3: <laughs> I would never totally blame it on the winner, uh just like I wouldn't on a, a baseball game that's opening in early April um the you know, the game's the game I I think um you know it's a weak report the numbers is uh much less than expected uh, perhaps at the beginning of a trend as Jim Glassman suggested but uh you know uh the interest rates themselves are already very very low and I wouldn't expect something like this to continue <coughs> to push Interest right. rates lower. The push that's coming, I think, is in the curve as opposed to the absolute level of interest rates.
0: One of the great distinctions they're linking in this labor report, Bill Gross, into the greater economy, Ellen Zetner and Morgan Stanley, arguably with a dovish call, even she suggested today this is a Fed with two, three rate increases out in front. Is this the kind of report that can be enough to nudge the Fed parlor game towards a more dovish Janet Yellen?
3: Well, perhaps you know if if continue for another month or two, uh, uh, you know anything below two hundred thousand and trending downward would be a indicator of a, a weaker job growth economy. And we know the Fed points to job growth, not necessarily to GDP growth, but uh, GDP growth has been two uh, percent or less, plus or minus, for you know some time now. So, um, yeah, I, I think the Fed, uh, in their terms of their minutes, was becoming increasingly. I think Dudley uh, this week has indicated that he would uh, look at tapering and that he would combine it with uh, the potential for further interest rate increases in terms of a a combo, uh, so to speak. And uh, that, to me, is an indication of a gradual slow pace, which... I've indicated that the Fed has to do going forward because of a highly levered economy.
0: I want to say here, David Gura, risk-off trade right now, folks. Even Swiss franc comes in stronger, Swiss franc, and yen is stronger. We didn't see that off the Syria attacks, but we do now see, uh, David Gura, uh, the yen moving off, uh, moving stronger, rather, with a risk-off field. David Gura, why don't you
1: jump in Yeah, here. Bill Gross, Jim Glassman called these monthly numbers noisy. We had Janet Yellen calling the GDP numbers noisy at her last press conference. I want to ask you about the integrity uh, of the the data here and how you regard the data. We had the White House uh, at its daily press briefing saying last time it trusts the data when the data were good. Uh, What do you expect them to do in terms of reaction to these data? How are you regarding the data right now?
3: Well, I think data can be noisy. Uh, Fake data, not necessarily fake, but uh, noisy data certainly can uh, move markets in the short term and not necessarily over a longer term basis. I think that the the focus really uh, for economic growth going forward is uh, not necessarily job growth, but productivity growth. And as we've known uh, for some years now, productivity growth is hovering around a 1% level. The questions as to why are numerous, but I would suggest that uh, they're at one percent, uh, which would imply a two percent GDP growth rate, simply because there's been a lack of investment and, uh, you know, something having to do, uh, perhaps, with the. Uh, paradox of thrift, something having to do with lower demographics and changing demographics. It just seems that uh, investment is going into stocks and financial securities as opposed to the real economy. And so if 1% productivity continues to persist, then we've got a 2% GDP growth rate, and that's not sufficient really to to make investors happy.
1: We see this market move. uh, The other big market move we've seen recently was last night, Uh, around the timing of these attacks uh, on Syria. Uh, We've talked about this before, but when you weigh the fundamentals against the political realities, uh, what's the bigger market driver to you right now?
3: Well, on a short term, certainly, uh, you know bonds are a flight to safety. We saw that last night they came back a little bit but um, and stocks being risk assets are are risk off in the very short term you know ultimately uh, it 's interesting in terms of conflict and in terms of war and we 're talking you know several years here uh, as opposed to several days but ultimately uh, bonds uh, you know fear war, conflict and reflation and equities, you know, tend to benefit from the gearing up of uh, the d- defense establishment and uh, profits related to it. And so it's a question of timeframe, uh, short-term, uh, bond-friendly, long-term. Perhaps not so
0: bond friendly. You know, Bill Gross with us worldwide on Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio, as he does every job. Stay thrilled to have him uh, with us, with Janice Capital. Uh, Bill, I, <coughs> excuse me, I looked through your portfolio, and you've got some corporate paper, and I see that you're grabbing coupon here. How are you going to protect from bond losses? Help our listeners and viewers who are savers. How do they protect themselves, given the higher yields
3: to come? Well, that's the dilemma of a a bond bear market. uh, Always has been. We haven't had significant bond bear markets uh, for a while. But what you do, Tom, is you've suggested short-term paper. You cut your duration. That's the same thing as saying, you lower the maturity of your paper, whether it's Treasuries or corporates, to um, you know what what fits your mood or what fits your uh, your fear level, I suppose. What does that mean? Um, yeah, you know, typically the the bond market has an average maturity of seven years, um, and so if you want to be protective relative to higher rates and uh, the negatives that happen with a seven-year bond, you reduce your maturities to five, four, three, two, one. Um, that, that's what we've done at Janus Unconstrained. Our average maturity is basically zero or even a right. little bit less because of mm. derivative ex- exposure. So duration's the key and keep it short. Uh, the problem right. with that, just to finish, is to say that, you know, the yields on the short end of the yield curve are much less, and if you're uh, striving for yield and grabbing for yield, then right. the short maturities hurt you.
1: But Let me ask you here, we're looking at, at so much foreign news uh, I wonder what that says to you about the president's domestic agenda. The The promise here was that we would get some tax reform and tax reform soon wither the promise of the Trump trade, as it's been called, or, or has it withered uh, almost all the way together?
3: Well, I think it's diminished, uh, correct, you know, based upon his... Ability to work with Congress and change uh, health care. The expectation now is that uh, the fiscal program, whether it be infrastructure, uh, you know, whether it be uh, tax related, uh, not necessarily regulation related, because he seems to be able to do that by executive order, but yes, it it does appear that the expectation for 2017, 2018, uh, in terms of its impact on economic growth, would be less, and uh, what's that number? It's certainly not the 3% Trump number that was uh, politically correct only a month or two months ago, but it's a a 2% number or less, and that impacts, yes. Equity prices uh, going forward, because they depend on growth and corporate profits depend upon uh, a 2% GDP growth or higher in order to increase, not per share, because companies are buying back their stocks. But uh, from uh, top line revenue and from a uh, profit margin level, uh, the economy needs 2% for uh, the stock market basically to grow. And that's been diminished over the past few weeks.
0: Bill, help us here with something I don't believe you studied at Duke which is soft data and hard data. I mean, I guess with this jobs report, the soft data crew are in retreat. Parse for us, I mean, it's one month's data and there's weather issues, I get it. Uh, Jed Coco, uh, the real estate guy out, making clear it was job losses all around, not just about weather. But help me here with the silliness of a soft data, hard data debate.
3: You know, Tom, the the hardest data that that I look at and believe in, you know, comes from uh, actual statistics in terms of retail sales. I mean, that's what um, it's all about, really. Uh, You know, are retail sales either on a same store basis or in general? Are are they increasing and at what pace are they increasing? I think we can trust that uh, in terms of hard data much more than any of these soft data that are based upon surveys.
0: I don't mean to interrupt you. I just, I just want to know what you're going to do this morning, so I can try to make some money to pay my taxes. Your sharp, your one-year sharp ratio is pretty good amid really challenging performance and all that. I get that. Is Bill Gross going to load the boat this morning? Because all the talk about three percent GDP is not going to happen.
3: Well, I think increasingly yes. And how do you load the boat? Well, you, you certainly don't own. Uh, risk assets, and you uh, don't own high-yield bonds because uh, you know lower growth will lead to uh, or have a tendency for wider spreads, and you also look. Uh, Tom in terms of monetary policy you look not just at the US in terms of the Fed and their tapering or their uh, not tapering in late 2017 and 18 but you also look overseas you look at Germany. To me uh, you know Germany is the most overvalued bond market uh, not in the world because we've got the uh, JGBs and the BOJ to compare it to but in any case they're injecting 80 billion dollars a month into their market. The 10 year is at 20 basis points all the way out to seven and a half years in terms of the bond market, you've got negative yields, and if anyone would argue that's a normal type of market, I would uh, tend to vehemently disagree. And so, you know, shorting uh, German bunds and yes, even going long yeah. treasuries at a 210, 20 basis point spread, to me is a very attractive trade because one of these days that spread's going to narrow. And in the meantime, you've got a high yield or a high right. carry.
0: German yields, David Gurl lower right now, negative 0.803 on the two-year yield. We, I wasn't going to say that because I'm afraid Gross will bolt the interview. <laughs> but there it is with a uh, <laughs> Lower negative yields, no, I've, greater. i got it right there, too. Oh, you I got guess. it right there, too. Okay, Bill Gross is uh, oh, yeah. uh, keeping track. He's doing that, folks, off his Bloomberg terminal.
1: Absolutely. David? Uh, Bill, it, it, me... is a blo- it
3: is a Bloomberg. That's correct. I see That's <laughs>
1: good. That's great. Bill, Bill, there's been so much talk about and focus on the, the Fed's balance sheet this week, in particular, as so we got those minutes from the, from the FOMC. Let me put a question to you I put to Jerome Schneider uh, yesterday. Can the Fed walk and chew gum at the same time? As it begins to unwind this balance sheet, can it raise rates at the same time?
3: well i think it 's hard uh, you know Dudley suggested that in order to avoid the fear of a tantrum, he suggested that if they do uh, begin to reduce their balance sheet or to uh, to lower the level of reinvestment, which is basically the same thing, that maybe the interest rate increases will be a little more gradual, and so that 's tended to placate investors, at least over the short term, and to avoid a tantrum. I'm not so sure. You know, over the uh, past 3, 6, 12 months with uh, you guys here in the morning and elsewhere, I've suggested, I didn't think the Fed could ever reduce its balance sheet because, you know, to my way of thinking, and it's too complicated to talk to, you know, the Fed's balance sheet is a reflection of the leverage of the economy, and if they reduce the $4.5 trillion to $2.5 trillion, to me, that's uh, levering up the economy in a way uh, that a approaches what we experienced in 2006 and 2007. I don't think they're going to do that, and I think maybe this is just talk to improve the yield curve to make it more positive and to help bank profit margins, but uh, that would be a little uh, suspicious on my part, and so I'll I'll just say suspect.
1: (laughs) How does a pro like you play the personnel issue uh, at the Fed? You've got Janet Yellen coming to the end of her term, so many vacancies on the Federal Reserve, the possibility here of a uh, very different direction when it comes to the Fed. How are you playing that?
3: Well, I consider uh, the fact that in, in a historical perspective that uh, other presidents have appointed dubs because they want to be re- reelected in the uh, following four years. And so I, I would think that Trump would do that, that uh, Janet Yellen uh, may be even reappointed uh, because she has indicated at least... To me, that uh, you know, she's very much of a dove, and so I, I would expect that the Fed uh, governors and uh, ultimately Fed presidents uh, would be a, a very yeah. dovish board going forward, a very cautious board. And I, I think there's a good argument for caution based upon the leverage. Although, you know, as you know, in, in past years I've argued that these low interest rates are very much affecting insurance companies and pension funds and ultimately something has to be done to renormalize rates or else uh, many of them are going to go bankrupt.
0: Uh, Bill Gross, one final question, if we could, this morning. Mr. Diamond out with an annual report letter this week, really talking about the man session uh, that we see across this nation of getting people structurally and importantly employed. Do we just need GDP growth, or is it much more than that? From where you sit with your decades of experience, do we need something more? Do we need a program, a policy to fully employ America?
3: Yeah, I think so. And it goes way back to the Kennedy administration, I guess, which is far, far back. Uh, But in terms of the AmeriCorps and in terms of a jobs program that were reflected in the FDR administration, I think, yes, that the government has to be uh, almost directly involved in it. PROVIDING JOBS FOR THOSE THAT uh, WANT JOBS. AND as, AS WE'VE SEEN WITH THE U6 NUMBER, IT'S COMING DOWN, BUT IT'S STILL ABOUT 9%. THERE'S A LOT OF AMERICANS Look, OUT THERE THAT WANT JOBS, THAT CAN'T FIND JOBS IN THE PRIVATE SECTOR, AND I THINK THE PUBLIC SECTOR SHOULD uh, PROVIDE THE uh, the IMPETUS FOR the, THAT GROWTH.
0: BILL GROSS, THANK YOU SO MUCH. GREATLY APPRECIATE IT WITH Janus CAPITAL, WITH MARKETS ON THE MOVE uh, THIS MORNING. Now we need to go uh, to another conversation, this with Gary Cohn uh, of the Trump administration.
6: White House in Florida, I would say, actually, Gary, welcome to the program. So we have some jobs numbers out here. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you, as always. Uh, We have some jobs numbers here. Have you had an opportunity to talk to the president? What is your reaction? What is his reaction?
8: I, yes, I've definitely had an opportunity to talk to the president. Um, overall, we're pretty pleased with the jobs numbers, to very pleased. When you look at the unemployment numbers going down, both the uh, 4.7 number going down, as well as the uh, the higher, the U6 number, we actually spent a lot of time looking at the U6 number coming down by three-tenths of a percent. We're pretty pleased with what's going on in the uh, unemployment picture here. And then you take that and you put on top of that what we know is coming with all the jobs that are being created by the companies we've talked to uh, in moving manufacturing back to the United States. We're very excited about what's going to be going on in the future here.
6: So the president has in the past talked about the underemployed, not just the unemployed, the U6 number, as you just said. Is that perhaps one of the most important things you and the president look at as you get this report card every month?
8: Absolutely. The president and I have spent a lot of time talking about the U6 number. You know, those those are, as you said, the underemployed people, the people that we think are, are working in jobs, that they could work in a better job if a better job was out there for them. And that number coming down by three tenths of a percent is very exciting for us. Um, and we're, we're happy to see that number below 9%. Obviously, we'd like to get that number lower, but that's a number we're spending a lot of time looking at.
6: So, so Gary, exactly what do you and the president think you can do to ad- address that number? What are the specific initiatives that you think will have the most effect? Is it fiscal policy? Is it tax reform? Is it deregulation?
8: I would say yes to all of the above. As, as you know, we've started um, down a multiple-track system Um, First of all, deregulation, because that's one of the easier things that we can attack some of the deregulation we can do through personnel by putting new personnel into some of the jobs. We can deregulate some of our our markets and some of our industries, and we're doing that. You've seen some of those things come through. You've seen them come through through executive orders, and you've seen them come through by some of the agencies. We're also working on tax reform. We think tax reform will have a very big impact on job creation, and you can also see the president, he's doing this every day, meeting with corporate leaders around the world having them um, commit to bringing jobs back to America. As we bring more and more jobs back to America, we will continue to increase the job opportunities. We also need to go through retraining. And I think you've seen the president and I think you've seen Ivanka Trump spend a lot of time talking about retraining our labor force and creating a, a more well-rounded labor force that can fill the jobs that we have today. We have a lot of jobs out there that need to be filled. We just don't have the right applicant pool. And training our applicant pool to fill those jobs will be very exciting for us. And we think we can do that. and We think we can do that very quickly.
6: Gary, you started with deregulation. And a couple of months ago, when we talked to you, you were just initiating under a president's executive order, an initiative to. Really review what could be deregulated, particularly with a view to getting more lending going to smaller and medium sized businesses. Can you give us an update on where that stands and what things we can expect and when?
8: Well, we're, we're starting down that path. You know, we've, we've been in office uh, for, for uh, just over 10 weeks now. Uh, and uh, we're, we're st- you're starting to see a bunch of our personnel appointments. You're going to see a bunch more in the next few weeks here as we go through the process of appointing people into, into the agencies. Uh, we've got three fed governors to appoint i think you're going to see some appointments come out in the fed governorships in in the very near future we're very excited about those appointments that will help us with with a lot of the deregulation of the banks we've talked about lending small and medium-sized lending and that's important to us we know that small and medium-sized businesses are the real job creators in this country and we need to get banks lending to small and medium-sized companies we've met with a bunch of banks both small, and medium-sized banks in in this country, and they're talking about to us about the issues they have with lending and getting small and medium-sized banks lending again um, to 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 grow econ- the economy and grow jobs is very important to us. Gary,
6: within the last forty-eight hours, there have been reports here that you are open to the possibility of reinstituting some form of Glass-Steagall. Could you connect that sort of re-regulation up with what you just said?
8: So remember, the the president during his campaign talked about a modern 21st-century Glass-Steagall. I was asked about that at the Senate Banking Committee in a bipartisan committee meeting, and I talked about the president's policy that he ran on about having a new, modern 21st-century Glass-Steagall.
6: Does that help get more lending being done to small and medium-sized companies? What would that accomplish?
8: Look, we would like to get banks lending again, what, what we're worried about is this one-size-fits-all regulation. So right now we've got this massive set of regulation that's built to regulate all banks as, all they're, as they're equal. If we come up with a 21st century modern Glass-Steagall, we may be able to tailor regulation for different aspects of the financial markets and different aspects of the financial uh, institutions. And that would allow banks to get lending more aggressively to small and medium-sized
6: companies. Okay, Gary, finally, you also mentioned tax reform. Give us a sense of where we are on tax reform. Yesterday, we interviewed Senator John Thune and asked him whether they might meet the deadline of August that Steve Mnuchin, your Treasury Secretary, had laid out. Are you going to make that? When would you expect we're going to have meaningful tax reform through the Congress?
8: So we're spending an enormous amount of time on taxes right now. It's uh, I, I would say it's probably my number one agenda item right now is taxes. We are coming up with the cohesive plan. We are gonna launch with one cohesive plan together. Uh, I don't know if it's August or not. Getting it done well and getting it done right is more important than getting it done soon. We are committed to get it done this calendar year. So this calendar year is very important to us. Uh, and, and you will see much more out of us on taxes. When the uh, Congress comes back from the recess, we have a lot of important meetings scheduled.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.